الحمد لله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم اللهم افتح علينا فتوح العارفين وفقنا توفيق الصالحين وانفعنا اللهم بالقرآن والذكر الحكيم اللهم علمنا ما ينفعنا وانفعنا بما علمتنا وزدنا علما يقربنا منك برحمتك يا رحم الرحمين لا إله إلا أنت نستغفرك ونتوب إليك وصلى الله على سيدنا ومن محمد وعلى آله وصحبه وسلم بسم الله Um, I think this week is, I will be led by you to what uh, you want to discuss or what you want to read. I'm not really aware of, um, too aware of where people have got up to if they, if they have started reading the paper. Um, so I think possibly the best thing you can do is sort of direct the... Uh, the hiwar, or at least people can ask what they wish to do. Assalamu alaikum, Sidi Ma'an. What do you say, Sidi Hassan? How would you like to proceed? I'm at your service, Habib Alwi. I'm just so delighted that you turned up. Well, it's very generous of you. Uh, yeah, um, I mean, um, uh, if you would like, I, to know, I have no, I have no lecture to give, uh, or, but I'm, I think it's best if we do. Uh, neither am I a teacher, so I think the best thing is to have a kind of we can have some kind of a loose seminar where yeah. we can discuss some of the things, and I can, you know, if you can illuminate me on some things and. We can go from there. I think that's probably the best thing. And let it be a much more relaxed affair than a teacher-student type of thing, which is absurd in my situation. So, Well, um, let's begin uh, just above halfway down on page four. Uh, what I asked the SADA to do, if, if they have time, is to read from page four to um, the end of, to, to page 14. We're not gonna get through all of that, of course, but um, but uh, with your permission, if I just read uh, a little bit, because I think- Yeah, Bismillah. As we discussed, there's a there's a particular masala which might be um, a good place to start the discussion. Okay. Inshallah. Bismillah. Um, yeah, so this is uh, one, two, One can say that there are ultimately two systems of thought or philosophy, those that find reality ultimately meaningful and intelligible, and those that do not. Traditional Islamic thought belongs to the former, as it adheres in its creed to the intelligibility of reality. And if, oh, a bunch of people I need to let in here. And if intelligible, then capable of, capable of being known. One can say that there are ultimately two systems 
of thought or philosophy, those that find reality ultimately meaningful and intelligible and those that do not. Traditional Islamic thought belongs to the former as it adheres in its creed to the intelligibility of reality, and if intelligible, then capable of being known. This acceptance of intelligibility presumes common presuppositions in the order of knowledge. As the common form of metaphysics in the Islamic intellectual tradition underpins such an order, the division of the sciences and the necessary consequence of a hierarchical interconnectedness between them necessarily underwrite this. This matter will therefore be examined first. Should I go on, Habibi, or is, is that... Uh... No, no, up to you, Sidney. Well, Habibi and Molay, I want to... You know, be in a place where you're comfortable, you know. I'm very comfortable. I'm sitting in my favorite chair and... Alhamdulillah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, I'll go on. The intention here, then, is not to furnish a mere historical catalogue of the varying taxonomies found in Islamic intellectual history. Rather, the primary purpose is to set out the principles by which the parameters of each science and their requisite boundaries and competences are established as a window onto the structure of knowledge and objective reality. The basic reasoning behind this is twofold. The modern West has since the time of the Renaissance sacrificed its understanding of the unity of science for the universality of science. The price of universality, however, led to the dilution of the boundaries between the sciences on the basis that such boundaries were nominal rather than real distinctions, accidental rather than deray. The intellectual link between the nominalism of figures such as Nicolas de Etrecourt in the 14th century and the later naturalist impasse in Western philosophical history is now unquestionable. Secondly, the uncritical adoption of positivist natural sciences has now become a universal phenomenon irrespective of creed or theological school. This questionable but unquestioned practice must either be due to the lack of a corresponding natural philosophy to counter its claims or due to the inability to see its positioning as incompatible with traditional metaphysics. The focus thus is precisely on the interrelationality and individual competence of the speculative sciences due to the incumbent crisis of the built environment and ecological, dis the ecological dysfunctionality of much of the modern world. The pursuit of solutions to these problems in the tortuous valleys of politics and instrumental problem-solving methodologies has proved futile. The seemingly intact nature of the authority of the religious sciences has not altered the picture either. This is rather important here. Implying that the problem does not arise simply in the authoritative structure of the religious sciences, but rather 
in the domain of the science of natural philosophy and its attendant subalternated sciences. The correct understanding of the hierarchy of the speculative sciences is also determinant of the role and supremacy of metaphysics and its handmaiden logic in situating the rest of the classificatory order. These subtle orders remain little taught or expounded, if at all, and are decontextualized from the necessary impact that they entail in the realm of the practical sciences. The unquestionable and unquestioned application of technology, itself a process rather than the science, reverts back to not merely a pronouncement of the science of ethics, but more importantly, to a misunderstanding of the delimitation of natural philosophy. The doctrinal presuppositions adhered to it, I think we'll stop there because the next thing is very important and I think it can be um, dealt with separately. So what I would suggest, Molana, is that um, there are a few discussion points here, which I think the SADA are going to find um, probably are going to have a lot to, to contribute on. And, um, and I think if you don't mind, I'm just going to write them in the chat here before I be quiet. So I think the first one is ultimately two systems of thought or philosophy. And then, and these are just suggestions. Of course, if someone else comes and saves me with something um, more urgent, then that would be wonderful. And I think this is a very important point, which is the <clears throat> sacrifice of the unity of science for the universality of science. And then I think over onto five, the interrelationality and individual competence of the speculative sciences due to the incumbent crisis of the built environment, etc. Um, and then finally, and finally, uh, the seemingly intact nature of the authority of the religious sciences has not altered the picture either, because I think this is also very key and tight. And can I just say, finally, um, when we joined this project, it was coming out of months and months and possibly years of discussions with Dr. Cream, Sidi Mustafa Starr and I, um, where, I mean, for me, speaking 
personally, and I know that the same applies for Sidi Mustafa, um, there was a, a very, two very, very fundamental philosophical themes that Sidi Karim introduced to us, which I think, well, I know for, for sure, in fact, um, we both find, found completely transformative in terms of our philosophical outlook. Um, and one was highlighting <clears throat> the importance of first principles and the fact that these are rooted in being and they have to be rooted in being. And the other was the notion of the, and closely related notion of the subordination and subalternation of essentials. So you, might, you might say, although I don't like saying model, but the subordinated and subalternated model of the sciences in the hierarchy of the sciences. And this is not at all some sort of subjective ordering, but it's this recognition that human knowledge, episteme, science, uh, scientia, al-ilm, in the, in the traditional sense of certain knowledge, only works because there is a hierarchical framework which is rooted in the nature of things in which the special sciences naturally fall. There is a natural order of the sciences. There's a natural ordering of the sciences. Every kul ilm achas, you know, every special sense takes its, uh, the, the, the principles that allow it to operate from a science which is broader than the special science in question, uh, possesses a greater certainty, a greater proximity to being because of being am than the special science in question. And uh, that uh, ultimately, there's there is a there is a, a a a structure of verification, of justification, ultimately resting upon metaphysics, which is the supreme science. And this understanding of the sciences is a very very fundamental basis of everything that we're doing, everything in the Nafs al paper, uh, everything in, in Sidi Mustafa's paper. And I recommend it um, uh, as a, a topic of discussion because I, uh, I mean, at least for the personal reason that I found it extremely illuminating of, of, uh, of, of the nature of philosophy and of, of a, a whole number of um, important uh, philosophical questions and difficulties that it, it had the capacity to very quickly sort out. Sidi Niaz, I've made you wait for an awfully long time, forgive me. Please go ahead with your question, Habib. Uh, not at all. Um, I did have, if it's appropriate here, um, I did want to ask Ustad uh, Karim to perhaps just clarify in a little bit more detail two issues on page four. One of them was the nature of what he meant by universality here and the manner in which there, uh, such a sacrifice occurs. That was my first question for him. 
Um, the second question is, he says here that the modern West has, since the time of the Renaissance, sacrificed this understanding. And as I'm sure Ustad Karim knows, um, Michael Gillespie seems to trace it further back to, um, well, you could say the early Renaissance in theory, I guess, but back to William of Ockham and Duns Scotus. And of course, I know it's a Catholic reading of uh, modernity in his book, Theological Origins, but at the same time, he seems to posit that uh, a lot of the issues begin uh, with uh, Duns Scotus and William of Ockham. So I wanted to get his um, perspectives on those two issues, if possible and if appropriate. Yeah, I mean, uh, Gillespie does that, but the Catholics want to, uh, for them, the bad, uh, the bête noire of philosophy is William of Ockham. Right. Um, but nominalism isn't really, it, it, he is nominalist in his logic, not in his metaphysics. And it doesn't really build up into what we understand as nominalism, this kind of straw man of nominalism, which really comes later under Dottricourt. That's when it becomes hardcore. Uh, is he, does it begin with Occam in some sense? Yes. Um, but it's not actually brought to any, uh, it's not brought to fruition until later. There is a there is a very good lecture on this uh, in Albert Le Grand um, uh, seminar in 1948. Uh, I think it's in the back. I quoted it, but that's where I reference it. I, I really suggest that you read it. Um, where's the reference in the 1477? So, Endnote 7, I think. Um, uh, Paul Vignot, Nominalisme au 14e siècle, 1958. La Conférence à belle And then have a look also at Georges de Lagarde. Uh, Gillespie and all these Anglo-Saxon writers are largely unaware of the vast amount of work that has been done on this. And American, American uh, intellectuals, Catholic intellectuals generally are not that aware of what was taking place in France and Belgium uh, prior to the war. And uh, they're, they're, it's very poorly read, that kind of literature. But the, the main work on uh, nominalism and how it succeeds and what it does, etc., is the six volumes of Jacques de Lagarde. Okay, that is the Bible for that. And if you if you don't find that reference, then uh, avoid the book and move on, because it really is seminal. Uh, Vigno's lecture is extremely important. Stephen Gaukroger, again, he's he's kind of he's interesting, but it doesn't really get into that central point. Um, as to the universality and unity, universality is a kind of superficiality. Um, it's, it's the notion that uh, if something is not extrinsically um, uh, relevant, then uh, in order to make it relevant, in order to unify it, you have to universalize it. Whereas the sciences are intrinsically unified by a particular principle um, and this is not ad adverted to by uh, people who follow that school of thought after the early Renaissance. And there are several Renaissances, of course, but we're talking from earlier on. German Renaissance has different things to think about, and, and uh, the Italian Renaissance uh, is mainly, concern mainly concerned with notions of form, etc. So uh, if we look at 
universality, the price that is paid is that um, there is an attempt to make a notion of a unified science as something that has universal application. And the particular competencies of each science are seen as a separative, disparate group of, you know, sciences. And, and that way of understanding things is not very helpful because we, we wish to have a much more nuanced view of reality. Um, and this arises from notions of nominalism, but uh, only in the sense that what other unity could there be than universalizing the sciences? And it's from there that we then get up, get to Pomponazzi and people like that in the 16th century, where we arrive at uh, the idea of a science that is competent to deal with the whole of reality. Uh, uh, and then it goes from there, which is the natural sciences, of course, because of the empiricist aspects of it and the importance of sense knowledge. Um, and then we go on our merry path to the production of modern science and the theories of modern science. I think in terms of the, just to add to something Hassan was talking about, uh, in terms of the interrelationality, um, the view of the classification of the sciences is to redirect our attention to the order of each competency in science and why it is there. You know, there's a reason why we don't study or look for God in the science of physics. And there's a reason why we cannot use a Burhan in the science of physics in order to show that God exists. So it's knowing what to use and what tool to use. And in order to do that, you have to know what the subject matter is. You have to know the parameters of each science and you have to know why it's set in such a way. And so the classification of sciences offers us <clears throat> a kind of grid by which we can understand um, we can understand how to treat reality in its differing resolutions. Um, and that's why it's closely tied to the notion of cosmology. Uh, the, the reference to the reference to natural science is also important, natural philosophy or philosophy of nature, sorry, uh, two different things. Um, the problem here is that we tend to have a situation in which we still operate uh, in the Middle East and in the Islamic world generally. I know that's essentialist to say that, but generally speaking, in that we tend to separate sciences uh, into groups. And we tend to treat certain groups of sciences as if they have nothing to do with each other. A good example of that is, for example, uh, aqidah, um, fiqh, usul, etc., religious sciences, what we call, and their separation from, for example, the science of architecture or the science of nature, the way that we understand nature, etc. And one of the problems here is that each is a form of knowledge that has its principles, has its duties, has its um, subject matters, etc. But they also invoke certain understandings in us. And so one of the main problems we have is that we lose intelligibility of our reality around us when we don't have a, a relationship between that which decrees our inmost beliefs 
and that which surrounds us. So for example, if we live in a modern city, that will affect our aqidah. It has an impact on us. Why? Because forms communicate certain things to us, certain truths to us. In the same way as you have somebody in the room speaking at you, and if he speaks truth, then you will become a better person. And if he speaks falsehood day and night, if you just have the television on and it's spewing stuff at you, it's going to affect your mentality. It's going to affect your attitude. It's also going to affect your way of life. If I go outside your house and reorder everything outside your house in accordance with a belief that you have nothing to do with, that you don't agree with, that it has nothing to do with your deen, that's going to affect you. It's going to impose on you a way of acting and impose on you a way of dealing with the reality around you. And that is why classification of science is important, because everything, every science is important. Every science has its place. Every science has its service to render and a service that we render to it. And so it's very important to see a structure where these things are in place and to understand how we're supposed to judge them. How do we, what are the criteria for understanding their principles? How are they set? And how do we establish whether they have been pursued uh, truthfully or not? And that's really important. So that's why I'm talking about uh, the idea of philosophy of nature uh, and things of this sort, because these things are very important to, to have. Um, in, in, by natural philosophy, I mean philosophy of nature here, not um, uh, in the sense of natural theology or natural philosophy. Um, the relationship also with metaphysics is very important because when we look at our philosophy of nature um, and what happens in our societies, these are metaphysical realities. They're not merely historical incidents. So we shouldn't look at them as mere historical incidents. We should look at them, the transformations that take place. We should look at them as representative of metaphysical realities. So there's no metaphysical neutrality to that which is taking place around us in the external world. Much of our, um, of our lived lives as Muslims takes place within a context or the context that we operate in. And to expect that the context or to expect that if we relinquish our influence over the context, somehow it's not going to affect us, is problematic. And that goes back to the psychological dispositions talked about last week. We are not pure, ethereal, saintly beings. We are human beings who have certain psychic presences uh, which are affected and I'm not talking about uh, a reductionism of the human being to merely his psychic capacities, because that is a reduction. Uh, a man is not merely his psyche, or a woman is, is, not merely, is not merely her psyche or his psyche. Um, there's more at play than just psychic effects. But it does play 
uh, it does mean that we have to be very careful about these functionalities in our environment because they affect us and they also affect the way that we think. And that's why um, we always have to look at metaphysics or metaphysical things in relation to their cosmological reality as well, because there is no separation. So that's how we stop ourselves from becoming mere conceptualists. Does that make sense or what do you think? Yes, um, at least um, from what you had said uh, earlier, uh, all the way up to these points here in particular, yes. Do you agree? Regarding the Renaissance, I'm not uh, obviously, as you mentioned, I mean, we don't, unfortunately, when we were reading the tradition, the Western tradition, we didn't touch too much uh, on the um, Nicolas, Nicolas Dutrecourt or some of these other um, people in the, in the Renaissance in, in France and, and Germany so much. Um, so I'm not as familiar with that. Um, our primary um, approach to the study of that was Dr. Said was an Anglo-American one. So Gillespie and Amos Funkelstein's book on uh, theology and the scientific imagination. Yeah. Um, so uh, this is new territory completely for me. It's something I need to obviously look into, inshallah. Yeah. Yeah. Dr. Cream, I've got a question. Is it possible for me to ask you a question? Come on, I mean. Um, I think we know that the Catholics, especially certain groups considered on the traditionalist side of things, have produced quite comprehensive uh, critiques of modernity. Um, and if you look at some of the people that um, uh, have written handbooks for seminarians like uh, Cardinal Mercier and and others and of course the works of Maritain and and Gilson and uh, and Gary Goulagrange and many others there seems to be quite a comprehensive approach to critiquing modernity at the same time as putting forward a metaphysical and cosmological view of reality, which seems to be uh, quite compatible with our beta and quite comprehensive. And I was just wondering what you would say about why that perhaps isn't a perfect fit for Muslim needs today. And, um, and just if you could expand on that, I'd appreciate it. Uh, 
Yeah, I mean, neo-scholasticism neo started around 1850 with somebody called Juan Balmes, who wrote the first book uh, retrieving aspects of Thomas Aquinas uh, and saying that this is really what we should be looking at. Um, uh, heretofore, to that point, uh, traditional Catholic philosophy was, was Descartes. This is what was accepted as traditional philosophy. And so with Juan Balmes comes the first approach to leaving Cartesian philosophy and moving towards uh, a reintroduction of Aquinas through the commentators, of course, uh, not uh, Aquinas directly. Um, and by around the 1860s and 70s, things start to mistotawur, and people start talking about uh, retrieving the tradition for the seminarians. Now, this is really uh, a question to do with uh, politics, because the papacy lost its power when the Piedmontese forces entered Rome, sacked Rome in effect, uh, the Pope lost his papal uh, temporal powers. And so the only powers he had left were the theological or the, the spiritual. So what he did was they consolidated very carefully and quickly the notion of papal authority as doctrinal authority. Papal authority was largely a temporal affair um, uh, in the way that he dealt with things. And he kind of tended to leave things to the doctors of the church to deal with theology. Um, so this kind of re-centralization of doctrine starts around this time. Uh, and so by the time Pope Leo XIII comes and, <clears throat> and issues his encyclical, which states that the doctor of the church is Aquinas, then neo-scholasticism becomes the official doctrine of the church, uh, again, built on largely the philosophy of Christian Wolff and the commentators. Um, this continues for a while. The only problem is that it still suffers from a form of materialism. Because when, for example, you mentioned cosmology, they don't have a science of, if you go and look at uh, the science of cosmology, uh, Gouhier or whatever, you look at the manuals, uh, cosmology that they're talking about is not what we're talking about. So that's the first problem. Uh, cosmology they're talking about is literally the study of the cosmos uh, in the sense of um, uh, you know, the, 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 the world as we find it. Uh, when we talk about cosmology, we're talking about the cosmology uh, we're talking about the sifat and na'ut ilahiyya that are uh, inscribed uh, uh, everywhere around us. And so we're sifting reality to find the sifat and na'ut. That's cosmology. Um, they don't have that. Uh, their metaphysics is largely rationalist. They rationalize uh, notions of metaphysics. It's very nice in the sense that they set things out very carefully, especially in logic, they're very helpful. But when it comes to metaphysics, there's a little bit of an impoverishment because the way that they talk about metaphysics is in a very rationalist way. Uh, why is that a problem? The problem, because for us, um, uh, especially in the tradition of Ihsan and so on, metaphysics is something that is, uh, yes, there's an intuition of being, as Maritain would say, but we, we, are, we talk about realized metaphysics. We talk about metaphysics that 
that has to be um, that, that has to be perceived or in a in a way that that uh, that is uh, that is a form of realization in order to truly understand it. The rational, in a sense, is the athar of that realization. So, for them, it's systemic. Metaphysics become a, becomes a system, and that is why it can be put to the side because it has no spiritual meaning. It has no spiritual reality. Um, uh, it, it's, a, it's an exercise in lucidity of thought. It's not an exercise in the lucidity of the, of the soul. It's, it's separated. Secondly, uh, thirdly, or fourthly, the, uh, the handbooks are very seductive when you first start to read them, because it would seem as if they are dispensing with all the philosophers that are putting forward, uh, that are put forward, you know, Kant and Hegel, etc., in a way that you feel uh, these people are idiots. There isn't really a problem. It's too simplistic, and um, they are essentially straw men much of the time. And uh, for us, that's a problem if we just go down that road. We need to uh, find a way of dealing with these philosophies in a much more intelligent way. Unfortunately, the Muslims tend to get bogged down in the details of philosophers, modernist philosophers, and they feel that an intimacy with the, de with the in details and the, uh, uh, the stilahat and so on of each philosopher is, is, is somehow a way of uh, having understood them and taking care of them. That's not true either. Um, these, you know, the approach that we, for example, would like to push forward is that if philosophers, modern philosophers, are found to be wanting in their first principles, then there's no need to follow them into the byways and narrow alleys of their details. There's no, there's no need for that, because in a sense, you can dispense of people or dispense of certain systems of thought upstream. You don't have to get him bogged down. One, because of a question of time, and two, because it serves no interest whatsoever. If there's inhiraf, and every time there's an inhiraf, I have to get into the details of things, then you know it's going to take us a very, very long time to deal with anything. So one potential way of dealing with that is to, to go to the principles of things. Now, the Catholics don't do that. Um, they, they start to talk about things uh, in a detailed manner, but it's not sufficient detail if you're going to get down into the trenches with these kind of philosophers. Um, it's just not sufficient. So that's problematic. By the 1930s, neoscholasticism starts to fall apart, and the manuals are useless, essentially. They're good guides to just see what's going on in terms of philosophy of history uh, and history of philosophy, but it's not really... Uh, taken seriously. By 1939-40, uh, uh, Surnaturel comes out uh, by the Lubac, and uh, the whole thing unravels. And essentially, it was a, an attack on the uh, commentate, showing that the Thomas Aquinas that they had, this is a very simplistic generalist thing, but I'm sure you all know, know it better than I do. But um, it was an attack on the impurity of, of the Thomistic message of neo-scholasticism, and it was unanswerable, essentially. 
Um, and so the church tried to stop Lubach from teaching uh, uh, as a Jesuit, but the Jesuits were quite strong. And uh, by the 1950s, the plot has been lost. I mean, they, they cannot deal with it anymore. And then it's just a slow uh, degrangolade until you get to the Vatican II situation where everything's thrown out of the window. If you were to go to Catholics today and talk about neoscholasticism, they would laugh at you. Uh, the only place where it is popular is in the United States and uh, where it's being revived through analytic philosophy. So you have analytic Thomism and uh, the, Catholic, the rest of the other Catholics study Thomism as a form of archaeology. They don't really deal with it as a system of uh, philosophy that that leads their faith, um, that expresses their faith doctrine in a proper way. Uh, but you get a, it's become popular, and a lot of those manuals now are being reprinted by born-again Catholic types in the United States, and they sell. They sell very well. Um, but they're, they're decontextualized from the period that they came out of. So it's very difficult when you read a book on cosmology by Hugon, for example, which was republished recently, uh, you know, you have to know where he came from, you have to know the surrounding uh, um, discourses that were taking place in the 1920s and 30s, otherwise it becomes uh, irrelevant. The other thing is there is an, uh, there's a overt emphasis on the philosophers that those times were obsessed with, like Henri Bergson, uh, like the philosophers that uh, were you know, um, very important for the Action Francaise, like Emmanuel uh, Mounier, like the personalists, etc. People, uh, Victor Cousin, which nobody reads today, nobody has anything to do with today. Uh, Bergson, maybe slightly, but a lot of these French philosophers, people didn't have much to do with. Um, it also deals with naturalism. Well, you know, they deal with certain naturalists that, again, mostly from the Romantic period uh, of the late 19th century. So, so to cut it, cut it, cut it short, um, the last school of Thomism that was operative was something called the River Forest School, and that was run by somebody called Benedict Ashley, William Wallace, uh, who take on modern science and try to uh, find an accommodationist position uh, with some very good critiques, um, uh, largely showing that the church did not condemn Galileo, that Galileo of modern popular history, for example, is not uh, uh, some virtuous person who was then shut down by the church. Uh, he was, uh, he had certain inclinations and uh, those inclinations were pursued injudiciously. And the church said, it doesn't matter what you believe, but as long as you don't apply it to scripture. And that is why he was condemned. This is William Wallace's main position. Um, but there is use to reading these books. Uh, there's, there's, it's useful, but it's not a paradigm that we should, in my humble opinion, follow, because we have a better paradigm. So um, that's a long-winded way of saying there's not much use reading them. It was wonderful, and it was much more than that. Thank you so much, Molena. Sidi Muslaziz, um, I noticed you had your hand up. Yes, thank you, Saad. Uh, Dr. Green, just um, I wanted to ask a question about uh, the. Uh, I think this may be the first line that we read today. Um, you say in the paper that 
one can say that there are ultimately two systems of thought or philosophy those that find reality ultimately meaningful and intelligible and those that do not so my study of uh, modern philosophy suggests to me that this may very well be the principal philosophical divide in um, the, the the chaos that we see in mainstream philosophical discourse in 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 modern europe at least and one of the questions that i'm uh, i fully believe that uh, there have to be uh, any system of philosophical thought will have to fall under one of these two categories the question i wanted to ask is uh, perhaps if in the initial stages of our reading of your book you could say uh, something about what is our general approach to conceiving of this dispute and uh, conceiving of this specifically conceiving of the conditions of its resolution so uh, if i if i am talking to someone and he or she says that uh, no reality doesn't fundamentally have an intelligible principal hierarchical order uh, the the principles of thought don't correspond to uh, reality it's not in its structure principle uh, these are in a way the in a, in their core sort of Uh, view the philosophies of kant nietzsche heidegger post structuralists etc etc so how do you see uh, what is the nature and extent of our engagement with such philosophies do we just say okay they reject the inherent intelligibility of reality and that view is just if so wrong um, how do we how do we respond to this uh, uh, visceral denial of the uh, hierarchical principal structure of 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 things i suppose if if that i don't know if i've motivated the question appropriately but that's one question i often think about myself in my no, studies I, no no i understand i think it's two questions i mean there are two issues here which is one what is the apologetic function of having to deal with people who believe uh, that there is no intelligibility in reality to reality uh, or philosophies do not serve any intelligible um uh, you know purpose um and those that do, and and the idea that um we have to understand this ourselves i think this project is not so much a arm wrestling uh project to convince the other person of something i think the first step in this project is to retrieve uh something that is dormant perhaps not lost not hidden but dormant in our tradition um and to try and see where does that does that serve as a good uh framework from which to judge and look at the way that we deal with knowledge and the way that knowledge is applied by us the the manner in which it is applied in two ways one are is our system of transmission directly connected to the necessities of the framework of the knowledge itself that we're dealing with or can you have can you modernize systems of transmission and it would not affect the knowledge um one two uh the way that we apply what we know and understand and believe in to the external world is that being done and if not why not and part of the colonial impact in our world is the impact that it's had psychologically and intellectually in us which is we've all taken on the napoleonic state concept which is you you 
you internalize your doctrinal beliefs they are inside you this is what you deal with it it's it's very an internalized process you discuss it we have conferences you go to university and write thesis on it but for god's sake whatever you do you cannot apply it in the outside world you're not allowed to do that um and this is this is the fundamental shift and break because largely people become agnostic about a belief system or a philosophy is when they are no longer able to exercise it it's a bit like lawyers you know i have i know lawyers who who've qualified as lawyers and then they become academics and um they're brilliant uh but if you were to put them in court they would drown because they don't actually know how to apply the legalities and the legal knowledge that they have in the real world not because they have to compromise but they just don't actually understand how to apply this properly they don't know what its consequences are because they haven't seen it they haven't practiced it and i think one of the problems why people become skeptical about traditional philosophy and knowledge is because as far as the the ibadat go and so on of course they can apply this but when it comes to what does it mean to become or to be a muslim how what does that mean for the way that i live what does that mean for the for what i produce around me what i create around me what kind of house do i live in what kind of city do i operate on to facilitate if you look at traditional planning look at everything was a facilitation for the spiritual endeavor for the spiritual life for the person to transcend himself fulfill himself you know it, it, to make the good people better and to make the bad people good that's the function of the way that it operated um when people go into modern philosophy so is because they've lost the notion they they've lost their idealists and they've lost the notion of how to apply something so it becomes a a game of the mind you know there is no intelligibility to reality well in that statement you have accepted that you are able to judge that there is no intelligibility to reality how are you able to judge that if there is no intelligibility in reality it's it's silly had there been no intelligibility in reality you wouldn't be able to make that judgment from whence do you get the objectivity to be able to make that statement it's logically childish so the project is not necessarily how do we convince the other person uh to believe in traditional philosophy and to leave his modern philosophy that's a separate project for people to take on a kind of apologetic um language uh of how to distribute this understanding in ways depending on the the milieu whether it be academic or social or um you know pedagogic in some way but i think it's a separate it's a separate thing primarily we need to retrieve it ourselves as a framework it's a very simple thing you 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 read it a thousand times every time you open a book uh on the alum you, you find this notion of uh classification always quoted but what isn't uh in, uh explicitly stated is how this can be a way for us understanding hierarchies 
and understanding how to do business with these sciences? Uh, how does it help us to make applications of these sciences? How does it help us to understand the implications of metaphysics in the wider, uh, disseminated widely within the classification or classificatory order? I think this is this is the more interesting thing. Allahu alam. What do you say? Siri. Um, that was very uh, that was very helpful. Thank you. I actually hadn't thought of this point um, that um, em emphasizing as one of the merits of a traditional metaphysical framework its applicability, its efficacy for being um, used in in other domains, not other than just the academic one. Uh, yeah, I, I think that. Um, this refers very well to the reality of the modern academic establishment, which is a, a very sort of a concrete manifestation of the Cartesian mind and world split. Like you have the academics here who, in this highly specialized built uh, academic apparatus, they do their theorizing and then there's the outward, outer world, which does the worldly stuff. And... Um, the inapplicability of academic theorizing in many of its manifestations has to count as one of its, uh, has to count as an indication that it's going wrong deeply in, in some way. So I, I hadn't actually thought about that. That's that, that, that a traditional metaphysical framework, one of the things that uh, appeals to me in, in it is, is, is actually just the fact that it enables me to make sense of, of my experience of the world. And, um, uh, it's not uh, the world becomes less foreign alien so um, I, I i think that's really profound and i'm very grateful to you for bringing that to our attention yeah that's, that's what our tradition says i think Inshallah. yeah the real external world they go out to where the scientist and philosopher meet up and play squash <laughs> <laughs> that's the real world for them i think uh, Sidi Satri Molana, you seem to have had your hand up for a very long time. Your arm must be hurting. Please do go ahead. Uh, thank you, Sidi Kareem, for, for all those explanations. They're very insightful. Um, so my question is, um, uh, this overall project, not, not just the one that uh, you know we're part of here at Taba, is, uh, you know, coming out from Taba, but in general, this idea that we have to retrieve our tradition, which is a much richer tradition than you know, the, the popular ones and offer around us today. Um, so part of this retrieval uh, would be, I guess, well, what, what is retrieval, right? So to understand what it means, what the different parts of the tradition are, the different subjects, the different principles and so on. But part of that, I guess, maybe it's a separate thing, uh, as you kind of indicated, is to see how it applies, right? To um, yeah. applicability is, right? So if you're coming, let's say you're like a, you know, um, a physicist today, um, how long would you have to wait for this to happen, right? So what, what, the reason I'm asking this is if we tell the physicist, hey, look, we have this thing that will solve your problems and it's actually true and it's better than what you have, they'll say, okay, show me it, right? And we can argue with him, right, in many levels to, to kind of somewhat prove to him or someone convince him that what we have is better. But until we replace his stuff, right, actually offer him a proper alternative that he can jump into and use, He's, you know, it's not really going to affect anybody anytime soon, right? 
So in the meantime, while that retrieval is taking place, I don't know how long it's gonna take. It looks like a big project, right? But in the meantime, what can we do? Right? Personally, right? This is uh, for myself. Uh, I, I jumped into the whole uh, Thomas tradition, right? And the reason I did that is exactly with uh, the, the people you mentioned, like uh, William Wallace and so on, right? So I, I take someone like him and you know his students and some of the kind of derivative work uh, of Wallace uh, from Wallace, right? And I see that as laying down a pretty decent uh, natural philosophy uh, that I can take to a physicist, right? Um, and argue with him about and try to replace something of what he has, right? Uh, whereas for our, the tradition you're talking about, which is of course clearly richer, right, uh, uh, and so much more, I don't have anything from that yet, right? And I might, might have to wait like a lifetime or two before I get anything from that, right? I, I don't know. Maybe I uh, it, it's less. So what do I do in the meantime? I, I don't. I don't think so. I think I think it's much simpler than that. Um, again, it's two things. You know, you're talking about what do we do about scientists? Scientists are. Uh, you know, fact idiots, they know one thing and they want to see this again, the universality thing, they, you know, they see the whole world in terms of physics. They see everything in terms of physics. It's, it's a form of madness. And I think one of the things that you can do with scientists is to understand what their postulates are. And if you can show a person that he is actually standing on nothing, or standing on things that are profoundly problematic as postulates, then that undermines his universal, his absurd universal application of his science to everything. Taban, things have become even more fragmented now. So even physicists, each person has his particular silo of, of work from which he sees and understands the whole of reality. And that's why they're mostly agnostics, because it doesn't make sense. So they say, well, we don't know anything about this, uh, but we know this little thing. One of the problems we have, I'm not interested in physicists in the laboratory uh, in Cambridge or, you know, people who are working. I'm interested in Muslims and I'm interested in uh, Islam and, and, and I'm interested in the idea of authority, the authority of knowledge and the authority of spirituality. When we look at people discussing the ulama today and saying to a alim, you do not understand psychology, you do not understand um, science, physics, uh, nuclear, protonic, whatever it is that they're working on, this is a form of ignorance because the ulama, or at least those that are uh, specially tooled in the aqliyat, are metaphysicians foremost. The mashayikh of Ihsan are metaphysicians foremost. They have a knowledge because they see the reality of things. They do not understand the guz'iyat of the specificities of the things that a person is undertaking or, or, or looking at, but they see the panoramic picture. And this is what builds societies. This is what builds worldviews. This is what heals societies and heals people's hearts and minds and creates a surrounding environment that we can function is. Today, we are going towards the electrification of society in terms of their needs, uh, electric cars, as if it's a climate change uh, necessity and we have to do this and so on. Where is the power going to come from? They tell you nuclear power. What does nuclear power do? It destroys the earth. So in order to save on people getting sooty 
ceilings and, and uh, having clouds of dust, we're going to get radioactivity everywhere. This is the kind of nonsense because the scientists are blind. Our ulama are not blind. They can see things. You have to speak, uh, Sidi, speak the question because I can't read. I don't know how to function in the chat. So put your hand up, Maulana, and, and ask the question. But, uh, but this, is, this is what concerns me. Uh, many times in the last two weeks, uh, I, I hear often the conversation, we have to do this because the ulama don't understand. Really? What don't they understand exactly? So there's this kind of belittlement of traditional knowledge on the basis that it doesn't quite get what is taking place out there today. And that is absurd. Are there people who are short-sighted, who are not learned enough, who try and meddle in things that they don't understand? Yes, there are. But as a whole principle to dismiss a class of the ulama and, 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 our, and uh, those that specialize, especially in things like this, and say that they have nothing to say because they're not specialized, it's a bit of a problem. So my main interest, Sidi uh, uh, Sachi, is not in uh, converting the physicist and whatever into, uh, into understanding that there are problems with his own knowledge, um, uh, necessarily. Primarily, it is to have a vision of reality and when it comes to the physicist, if there is an interaction, I find generally on a personal level, whenever I discuss these things with any person who is specialized, astrophysics or whatever it is, and I had some experience of this in Cambridge back in the day, um, they don't know where their stuff comes from. They don't understand where their knowledge is based upon. They don't understand. Uh, so they operate in this kind of cloud of specialisms. But they don't really understand the implications of it. And when I met an astrophysicist and I showed them some of the diagrams, uh, uh, astronomical diagrams coming out from a work of Sheikh Lagbar and things like this, they were, they were bewildered. Where did this come from? How is this possible? You know, because there were, some, there were things there that they knew astronomically. And they understood astronomically and relationships and so on. How is that possible? Well, Sheikh Lagbal traveled throughout the planets. He didn't need a, a space rocket. If you read his book, Tanazilat al-Mosuliyah, 55 chapters, he tells you how he visits each planet and tells you who lives there and what they do there and what its functionality is. When I look in a telescope, I see nothing. If I could see that far, I could see nothing. There's nobody on the moon. There's nobody on Mars. It's empty. So there's a lot of these things that are, it's a bit more complicated than, anyway, I'm rabbiting on. We're benefited immensely, and I, I think I can speak for everyone when I say that. Sidi Aslanuddin, um, could you very kindly uh, put forward your question, please, Habibi? Yeah, I mean, it makes a lot of sense, but how do you argue with someone who says that the Yad, for example, in the physics or so forth, they would then affect, affect the panoramic view. So, I mean, we can take that as an example from previous philosopher when they, or philosophers, when they spoke about uh, certain aspects into this sublunary world and about the universe and so forth. 
by now the interaction or the discoveries in modern physics have sort of changed that. So how would you respond to that? Thank you. The, the, the scientific tradition, uh, the Islamic scientific tradition, I, I'm sorry, I keep using Islamic, it's very essentialist, but I can't think of a, a, another word, but the Islamic scientific tradition in all its myriadic differences and so on, had many models that they dealt with. You had the Aristotelians, you had the Ptolemaic models that they utilized, you had understandings of, as you say, the sublunar world it was this and that and the other. These are models for reality. What underpins the models is a metaphysical understanding. Regardless, you know, um, all philosophy is essentially a, a, a kind of language by which to understand, an analogical language by which to understand reality. And these are languages, and some of them are more exacting and some of them are not. But when it comes to uh, the highest form of this, which res resides with the people of Ihsan, uh, you know, you're, you're hard pushed to try and tell me that this is false, primarily because you haven't, you don't have, not you yourself, but the person, the interlocutor, does not have a knowledge with which to dismiss what is being said. Because the science itself, the so-called science today of cosmology, the science that is taught in Southern California University, astrophysics and so on, that itself is a proximate language with which to understand the reality of discoveries that they're finding. But it is not an exact science. There is no such thing as an exact science. And that is well understood since the 1927 uh, discovery by Heisenberg, the principle, Heisenberg's principle. So um, it's a problem. So I don't think we're, we're dealing with a very exacting view of uh, reality that the physicists are coming up with and modern scientists are coming up with. And then you have the kind of very kind of cloudy, uh, sentimental mood music, traditional version, which, um, uh, you know, which is, uh, which is rather the faith obsessed and, and not necessarily reflective of the true reality of things. I think that's, that's, that betrays a kind of, um, that betrays a kind of uh, um, a feeling that somehow the physicists and so on are, have a neutrality. They have an objectivity by which they play. Um, there's no such thing. There's no such thing as objectivity today in modern science. They don't have it because empirical measurement, however sophisticated it might be, cannot be exact, cannot not be subject to the properties and qualities that they wish to adorn it with. It fails. Thank you so thank you. much, uh, Mela. Oh, go on, Aslan, please. No, no, I just said thank you. Oh, just okay. Sorry. Um, uh, thank you so much, Mela Cream. Uh, uh, providentially, uh, just as you were uh, speaking those beautiful pearls of wisdom, um, Professor Omar Nassim came in, who I was very lucky to have a beautiful conversation uh, with him yesterday about just these kind of themes that we've just been discussing. Um, and uh, I, I'd wonder, I wonder if you'd weigh in here um, a little bit, Professor Omar, just about this question of Aslan's, um, I mean, you know, in a, in a traditional, view of 
metaphysics, um, which in a way we are retaining despite a total shift in the, in the mainstream view of knowledge as a result of the ascendancy of, uh, of a particular view of the natural sciences in the last 300 years or so. Um, but we're retaining and we're, we're seeking to promote, um, I mean, if you look at it from a historical angle, partly because it never changed in the, in the Muslim world, that's not the real reason that we're, um, we're continuing to uh, promote that view and seek to understand that view, but it, it is a historical reason. Um, but you know, our view is that the intelligible world is internal. There's no change in the jus'iyat of the sensible world, which are controlled by the intelligible world, that could change anything in the intelligible world. And that's because the, the intelligibility of the empirical world rests upon that prior framework of the, 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 the actually existing prior intelligible world. But um, I was wondering if you might be able to intervene just on this issue of the, um, uh, the, 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 the actual uh, ontological and epistemological status of certain key modern theories in physics, whether it's Einstein's contribution or the, the whole quantum picture that was uncovered. Um, and just, you know, perhaps a little bit on what we were discussing yesterday in terms of uh, uh, some of the, the, the aspects of this world, when they talk about fields, for example, they talk about space-time, um, uh, where in the popular imagination, there's this idea that this has a, an empir empirical dimension, which, you know, the scientists know about. And you were telling me yesterday that a lot of this is purely mathematical models and there's no real way to see beyond the mathematical model. And, and even, indeed the physicists themselves are stumped if they're really pushed to try to identify what it is that's putatively beyond the mathematical model. Sorry for putting you on the spot, Molan. I, I fully understand if you're not in a good uh, uh, place to, to, to speak or, or whatever, but I, I'd be honored if, if you do have anything you might be able to offer there. Well, well, first of all, I, you have to excuse me for being late. Um, uh, I, I just got back from the, uh, the library, which was working in the archives, and I didn't think it would take this long. So please excuse me. I think I missed something very good here. Um, the central but, mosque is not quite as central as it, as it sounds. Yeah. <laughs> it is not. <laughs> so, uh, and, and I don't know what the discussion was prior. So I'm sort of jumping in here. A little bit blind, but I'm just taking the cue from um, Sidi uh, Hassan. Um, uh, in terms of physics, modern physics, I sort of caught the last bit of what Brother Sidi Karim was saying. Um, and uh, if maybe I could just say a little bit, because I, again, I'm just jumping in here on a cue. So uh, very simply, um, uh, though it's not a simple matter, um, physics today is very much driven by uh, models and, uh, and the way in which they actually do or do not latch on to the world is uh, very much ever uh, at the forefront of the physicist's mind. And so what ends up happening is that they create these models that then 
find some sort of a confirmation uh, in the empirical world by means of observations, which are usually measurements uh, based upon predictions. Um, now, there's a bunch of questions here. You know, is the empirical world that is in this way determined, is that equivalent to reality? Um, that in itself. So what they even considered the empirical world may not correspond to what, for instance, traditional metaphysics regards to be reality. Um, and on the other hand, the models that are being uh, put together is, are very much, as I was mentioning yesterday to Sidi uh, Hassan, are very much based upon a coherentist uh, idea of epistemology rather than a foundationalist notion of epistemology. And that is, uh, basically, things are positive. So time, space, certain variables, certain constants, uh, these things are um, posited in ways that relate to formulae that are basically mathematical descriptions of relationships. And um, what matters in that in these models are basically the tweaking of these relationships to such fine degrees that then they yield some sort of predictive uh, outputs about what ought to be empirically observable. And once those two match, then you have some sort of confirmation. But again, it confirms it in a coherentist picture. So it confirms the premises. It confirms the posits. It confirms the conventions. But they remain those uh, nonetheless. That, In other words, they remain conventions. They re remain posits um, for, for, for a very long time until... Um, until at some point, and this is for a historian, this is a very interesting question. At what point does, does the physicists community um, uh, weigh in and, and um, how do they actually determine when it's no longer a posit and it becomes a reality? And usually significantly and very interestingly, a lot of that is done through social means, even by voting. So there's great examples of entire large congresses of physicists making a vote as to the reality of a, that of, of a prior posit. Because by now, according to this community, um, the, the observations over the last 50 years have grown and grown and grown and only confirmed and confirmed. And now we could all sort of vote and say, this is reality. So it really sort of is a, is a quite an interesting system. And again, as I was just catching the last bit of what uh, Brother Kareem and what Hassan was saying. And this is a very different picture from the popular picture of physics and the popular picture of natural sciences. Natural science works very differently than what the popular uh, perceptions of it uh, typically um, yield. I think I'll leave it there. I, I hope that it's okay. That was absolutely fantastic. And I thank you so much for um, sharing uh, some of your knowledge there. And I think that uh, I very, very much look forward to um, uh, learning more from you in the future. And uh, indeed, uh, I may bother you by um, pestering you about possibly uh, leading a session um, sometime in the near future. But in any case, um, I, I think here, that, thank you, Sylvia, that's really important. But I think here, this is where the, the um, going back to uh, the classification framework, you know, we can accommodate this. I mean, the empirical world is a reality. What we say, it's not the reality. So we can accommodate that. 
what we don't accommodate is decisions that are made on the basis that it is the sole reality. Uh, that's, we don't agree. And as Sidna uh, has shown, these are just like exercises in saving the appearances. It's like the old, the old myths that used to be uh, uh, reported and, and uh, perpetrated by earlier scientists and so on, which are based on merely Elham um, and uh, a lot, a lot of rationalization. Um, but yeah, we, 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 we need to, we need to um, just, I just want to make this remark because I think this is really important to, to not leave off. Um, we cannot have a lived Islamic reality without understanding and questioning and uh, uh, sizing up what we term to be our philosophy of nature. This is one of the greatest acts of schizophrenia that we have been subjected to everywhere in the Islamic world. How do we retrieve our surroundings? How do we retrieve our understanding of nature? How do we retrieve the application of what we understand to be nature is? This is one of the most essential things because if we lose this, we are like brains sitting in a vat talking about things that have no understanding, no relevance to our children, our children's children, and the vast majority of the people that we talk to or, uh, uh, or start to read metaphysics or start to read the traditional texts. The tradition, if the traditional texts are not contextualized in the way of life, and that means the whole of the way of life, then we have a serious problem in terms of the uh, upkeep of the traditional aqliya. It's a really serious problem, and it has to be resolved quite quickly. Thank you so much, Sidi. We've had two people waiting for some time, but um, Sidi, uh, I believe you're um, my dear Habibi, but your name's not there. Um, so could you just confirm my guess that you are indeed Uzair? Yes, it is. Sorry, that's me. Yeah, and thank you so much. I wanted to ask um, <clears throat> um, about um, what Sidi Karim said, which is that the kind of um, epistemic hierarchy or the hierarchy of the sciences um, corresponds to an ontological hierarchy uh, or a hierarchy uh, in, in reality. And uh, I, would, I would be grateful if you'd be kind enough to elaborate a bit on that, because um, the hierarchy of the sciences and there being a higher or lower science makes sense. And the, and the principle of that would be that, um, if I understood correctly, that some sciences deal with um, a kind of a higher subject matter, which then provides the subject matter for the lower sciences. And um, that is, it, it makes sense. You need to have a, to have a, um, a system of knowledge. You need to have that kind of structure and that hierarchy. However, um, in what, what way exactly that corresponds to a hierarchy of um, kind of ontology of reality isn't as clear to me because if, is it, is it therefore saying that there's some, some parts of reality which are um, quote unquote higher than others? Um, if so, what would the principle of this hierarchy be? Um, and, and then uh, just related to that, I have a little bit of difficulty um, reconciling that with um, suggestions that you know wherever we turn we see the face of Allah and, and one can um, find him 
um, through whatever task they're they're doing. Like you, you give the example of a water carrier in the previous session, yeah. And through the through soak water, something like a small menial tasks, quote unquote, you find him. So isn't this um, kind of hierarchization of reality potentially a little bit more problematic? Unless its principle isn't very clear to me. So I'd I'd just be very grateful if you'd be kind enough to elaborate on. Thank you very much. Well, that's many questions, CD. Um, I'll try and just uh, deal generally with it, if I may. Uh, you know, hi hierarchy is not, I don't mean hierarchy in terms of uh, a pyramidal shape, where you have the boss at the top, and then you have people at the bottom. Um, we're talking about hierarchies that are uh, essentially fluid, not static. Um, and we're talking about hierarchies that are um, uh, circles within circles. Uh, that's the hierarchy I'm talking about. In terms of the, uh, there is a, the intelligibility parallels existence. There's a paralleling between intelligibility and existence, because everything that is given existence uh, has intelligibility. It is something that is knowable by the mind, by the intellect. So um, why? Because everything that is created is created from God's knowledge. And there's nothing in God's knowledge that is not intelligible. So that's one. Two, uh, why are the sciences? Uh, the sciences are about the reality. So their knowledge is of reality, some aspect of reality. And so the hierarchy of the sciences is built on the more specialized the sciences, the more exclusive it is, the lower the science it is. The more inclusive as a science, the higher the sciences uh, is. So that is the hierarchy of the sciences. Why? Because if it's exclusively dealing with some aspect of reality, it is not on the same higher plane as something that deals more, more inclusively with aspects of reality. So metaphysics is the highest science because it deals with that, that which has not been determined by uh, uh, it, it, it is, it, it's the notion of being not determined. And so it's a much wider, more inclusive. It includes everything, right? So that is why it is a higher science. Does it have a dominant role? Yes, because it sets the principles for the other sciences, at least the, the, the uh, common principles. The proper principles that arise in those sciences arise because of the common principles. Right, uh, and and uh, and there's a whole thing really we won't get into now, but the notion of wherever the, the you see the face of God, well, of course, wherever you look, uh, you see that which gives reality reality. Um, without that, there would be no reality. Without the asma, there would be no reality, because we are the madhar for the asma. So. In, in, and by being madahir, we get a form of reality. Without it, we don't have a reality, not metaphysically speaking, because of our contingency and the contingency of the material world. Um, the water carrier is not something that is lowly because he embodies a principle that is transcendent and that and he serves and illustrates that in the way that he posits himself within society so for example the water carrier is humble he has very little money he seems in a capitalist society he would be somebody that you could run over quite easily uh, 
uh, and usually does get run over in, in certain places, and nobody bats an eyelid. But in a true Islamic society, uh, or a society that frankly has been witnessed historically for centuries, uh, the water carrier is as important as the Sultan, because he has his functionality. And society is essentially a functional conglomeration of people. Everybody has a function, not in the Marxist sense of being uh, a form of utile being, but in the sense that his functionality helps to preserve the wholeness of that society, and hence the guild, and hence the sense of relationship between that which is transcendent and that which is material. Um, the actions that he undertakes are, are, in a sense, a form of uh, actions that are choreographed in some cosmological sense by a higher level of reality. And so it has meaning. And that is why people in Islamic society were not that bothered if they were rich or if they were poor. What they were bothered about is what spiritual opportunities did they miss in whatever place that Allah has placed them in and put them in. This is what it was about. Um, so it's a different kind of, I, I don't see the, maybe you can tell me, I don't see the difficulties of the water carrier and the notion of hierarchy. Sidi, if I, if I missed the point or? I'm sorry, yeah, if I could perhaps be a, a bit more to the point. Um, so the principle of the hierarchy of the sciences would be inclusivity. Um, and that corresponds to a principle um, or corresponds to a hierarchy or an ordering of reality. And so I was curious, what is the principle of the ordering of reality? Is it also a kind of inclusivity, inclusivity of what in that case? Um, or is it a different principle? It's not a, it's not a principle of inclusivity. I, I don't understand what, what you mean by that. What do you mean by a principle? It's not a principle of inclusivity. inclusivity. I'm talking about the, the hierarchy is determined uh, that the sciences are a partaking of a particular resolution of something in reality. So, for example, if you look at the speculative sciences, they deal with things in their most immaterialized aspects or determined aspects, going back down to the more determined or materialized aspects in reality. So physics, as a broad term, looking at bodies, uh, and mathematics is, is a halfway house. Not reliant on physical reality, but at the same time partaking and illustrated within physical reality. And then you have the more immaterialized, which is metaphysics. And each one has a particular uh, 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 aspect of reality that it deals with. So the more exclusive the lower down it is in the rung of hierarchy. The principle of hierarchy comes from the actual notion of reality. Reality is one. That's the first step. Knowledge is gradated in, its, in the way that it understands and studies those aspects, not because of some decision that has been made by people sitting together, but because that is what reality imposes upon us. And it's dealt with in the paper uh, to a certain extent, which is um, uh, uh, if you have if you have a, a notion of reality is one, as Sidi Hassan uh, quoted the last time, there is no split in reality. 
then each aspect of that reality must be interrelated and interconnected, and each must have a certain dimension of kathafa or etherealized uh, uh, aspects. And in speculative sciences, the gradation and the hierarchy is based on that, as we said. So it's not so much, in one sense, it's inclusivity, but it's not so much inclusivity as, as you're suggesting. Is that clear or not? Uh, yes, it, it's much more clear. Thank you so much. I think I, I misunderstood a point. Thank you, Jack. If I make any mistakes, please correct me. I mean, I don't um, profess to to be the spokesman for these things. Molana Sachi, was this? Uh, is your hand raised for a new question? Yeah, yeah, just uh, in a way, yeah, just to continue from the um, based on what few people have already said, and also kind of relating back to my previous question. I'm I'm trying to understand uh, Sidi Karim, right? Your your strategy here, right? Yeah. So um, previously you said, you know, when you're talking about engaging the physicists, uh, yeah, sure, they don't know their principles, they don't know where they're coming from, and they're very difficult to engage with, right? But then you just said that uh, you know, uh, developing our uh, a relevant and um, applicable philosophy of nature is is paramount, right? Yeah. But then if we were to try to develop that, we we can't really ignore you know, what the physicists say, because they'll be, you know, they'll be shouting at us. They're, they're, they're trying to, you know, take over that space, however wrong they are, right? And however bad they are at what they do, right? Uh, but we have to address them somehow, right? So what I mean by that is, um, you know, we need to give them an understanding of, let's say, the metaphysical status of the things they're working with, like whether it's particles or fields or equations or whatever it is, right? So we need to really address that and maybe replace Right, argue with them and replace the metaphysics that they have, so they're, that they're somewhat, maybe not fully convinced, but they see our approach as, as you know, uh, contending with them. Right? Otherwise, we'd be sort of talking in our own spaces and nobody will listen. Right? No, I don't. I don't agree, Sidi. With all due respect, I think I don't think that the way here is to convert the scientists. Modern science is a cult. It's a cult, and it monopolizes the public space. It monopolizes the way that uh, reality should be seen. It monopolizes our environment, our environmental structures and frameworks and built environment. And it, it is very tyrannical, monopolistic, and very, very stupid. And it's costing us the earth, literally. It's destroying our world. It's destroying everything around us. And then we have to sit and try to convince them. I don't agree. I think the initiative should be on our behalf is to create an alternative uh, lived reality in as much as we can to express that, to show the fruits and benefits of it to the Muslims first, to our Muslim communities, to our local communities, to people that have a commitment to the mafahim that we have. And once it operates and people see that, they will desert this deadly world that they have created. Modern physics has failed. Modern science has failed. And the, uh, the idea that we should spend our time and effort to try and convince those that have entered into the cult to leave the cult when they refuse to understand philosophy, they refuse to examine their starting points, they refuse to give anybody else quarter in, in showing a different way of understanding reality without quaffing at it and distorting it. I don't see why we should spend time with these people at all. I, I have no interest whatsoever. And I don't see why we should waste time doing that. 
Time is of the essence at the moment. We don't have time to convince them. They will never be convinced, not if they retain those cultic tendencies that they have. You cannot negotiate with modern scientists because they will always have a superiority complex that they know reality and you don't. You don't understand. So, so let, let's say you have you know, thousands and thousands of you know, Muslim scientists, right? Yes, they will agree with us uh, you know, because they're Muslims on, on you know, all the principles. But um, until, you know, and then let's say tomorrow they go into work, right? As a physicist, whatever, right? Yeah. Uh, they'll be doing exactly the same thing, right? At some point, uh, a bunch of them can band together and, you know, change things and whatnot, right? So that's what I'm wondering about. When they band together and change things, what are the steps? Yeah, but change is not going to come from physicists changing their mind and thinking it's a good idea to, to have a, a, a metaphysical uh, understanding of reality. So that's not going to happen from physicists because they are the most, they, they are the people most in need of saving uh, the people who are going to do this are the ulama the mashayikh it's to give them the space to do what they have to do this is what this project is about traditional knowledge has its adherents has its specialists has its people who we learn from and we continue and we dis, uh, and we uh, and dis, they dispense their knowledge to us through transmission lines etc cetera, etc cetera. They are the authorities that are the authorities of knowledge. What we're saying is give these people the opportunity to continue to transmit what they have and to apply what they have. That's what we're asking. We're not asking for us to convert physicists and whatever, because the world that is created by when you have a contiguity between spiritual authority and the knowledge authority in our societies are permitted to continue their work to be able to manifest what they have not in the silo of the akliyat or, or, or of sorry of the of the shari sciences alone but of the wider notion of the madhab implied and and applied sorry applied uh, more widely then we have the society that we're asking for but to spend time talking to Muslims who have fallen into the trap, one, of the sin of pride of academia, two, of having entered modern science as a cult and seen something that is solid, therefore they attach themselves to it, that's not going to happen. It's going to take forever to do that. The Catholics failed totally, totally in making any impact on modern science in the 1920s and 30s and 40s and 50s, totally failed. And they, and they did some serious work, as you know, and you read, and you're specialized in. What have they achieved with it? Nothing. Nothing. Nothing at all. Because they went about it the wrong way. We have to go around first establishing the spiritual priorities. Secondly, the transmission processes for our knowledge in metaphysics. And thirdly, at the vast wealth of material and understandings and knowledges in relation to the application of that metaphysics. That is missing today. So you can have somebody who specializes in metaphysics and doesn't understand a single thing about art. He thinks art is for rich people who are spoiled, who don't have enough uh, uh, things to do on their hand, and they go and do a bit of art. Nobody talks today about the necessity of the knowledge of art. It is necessary because it's a way of understanding reality that has always been implicit 
and explicitly found in our societies that certain knowledges, certain realities cannot be understood by words. They have to be understood by symbols. And the carrier of symbol is art, is the craft, is the built environment. This is a form of metaphysics. This is a form of lived metaphysics. Where is that today? Those are, this is what I mean by the transmission. And when I talk about a, a master of art, a master craftsman, he's a alim. He's one of the ulama as well. And we have to safeguard these people because without them, we have lost our society and we have lost our tradition. But if we spend all the time dealing with uh, physicists and the guy who went to the American University and got the PhD and believed the whole thing because he's got the PhD, it's a big problem. That We have a very big problem with academia. It brings in a sense that we know something. And remember, for us as Muslims, you only know that which you have realized. Otherwise, your knowledge is posited upon those that have that knowledge and that have that realization. And that's why we have to attach ourselves to Mashaykh, because we're not realized beings. But the idea that you can go to university and have a grasp on reality in that way and be able to discuss it and philosophize about it, I think that's deluded. Uh, uh, and that's why physicists are not going to be helpful to us. But this is my personal opinion. Please forgive me for, for that. Uh, I, 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 wrong. I don't know. I may be wrong. No, no, I, I, I pretty much agree with everything you said. I'm just wondering about the strategic details, but I, I'll sort of mine you for them over time. <laughs> uh, yeah. So that, that, that's the only thing I'm, I'm you know, just almost like if you look at it as a 10 year project, 20 year project, and what does, what do people do in the meantime when, when they're not part of the project, right? So to speak. So that, that, that's, uh, yeah, that's what we're I'm looking for. Project, we're all in the project of life. I mean, you don't need a project to do this. It's, it's a, uh, you know, you can go 100 meters from your house and find find somebody, uh, alim or one of the awliya, and learn a craft or learn... I mean, there's all sorts of things that one can do. It, it's not dependent upon doing the project in order to bring... Do you see what I mean? And in the sense of retrieval, what we're saying by retrieval is, is like I said in the first lecture, we're not renewing anything. This is every... And what is being said here, everybody knows. It, it's not like a revelation. It's, 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 it's everywhere. But what we're saying is, let's look at it again. What does it really mean? That's it. That's the retrieval. It's not, it's not like um, esoteric knowledge is being divulged or anything like that. Well, this is a very, very big topic. And uh, can I suggest that we uh, pursue it in hopefully many uh, coming sessions, inshallah, because um, we're coming to the end of our time here. And I think we have a final question from Sidi Taymor, if you would uh, please... Honor us with your your question, Sidi. Yes, uh, thank you, thank you, Sheikh. Um, I have a, a question about precisely the the things uh, we've been discussing, especially with Sidi Shachi's question. Uh, so, um, uh, Sheikh Karim, you you've said um, that instead of engaging with, for example, the physicists uh, who are a part of this cult, what we need to do is we need to be um, putting into action, as it were, the, 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 the things that we're talking about, the metaphysical principles. And you, I think, express a degree of optimism uh, about 
uh, when these alternative ways of being in the world are proposed and are actually lived out, then people will in fact leave the the uh, the the their former commitments, and you know things will start to change, as it were. Um, my question is that in when we are going to try to implement and embody these alternatives, do our alternatives have to um, have to deliver? as well as the, the, uh, the, you know, sort of the existing uh, in structures, I suppose, in terms of the things that they deliver very well in. So for example, even though, you know, modern science has, has cre created so much destruction and so on, there are things that it's good at. And, um, uh, and just, just for example, in, in terms of people uh, thinking that, you know, um, uh, you know, the population is going up and we need to say, for example, increase, you know, agricultural productivity or something like that. And people think that but because they want to consume more, they believe that this is the, the, the this kind of scientific um, sort of establishment can help us sort of achieve that goal, even though it's, of course, there are moral and ethical can problems just, there. Can just, yeah, can I just address Please. that in, 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 uh, uh, we are told today in farming, modern farming, that we cannot be self-sufficient in the United Kingdom, right? It's impossible. Uh, and that's why we have to import and export and all this kind of stuff. Uh, and what we do essentially here, they, they fiddled the, uh, they fiddled as they fiddled with everything. They fiddled the, uh, the statistics to show that we have a high level of self-sufficiency because we produce processed foods. And I won't get into detail. In the 1950s, they made a study in this country and it was a vast movement. And we can go into the history another time. They have shown that this country can be self-sufficient to serve 125 million people living in Britain. Do you know how many people live in Britain today? 75, max, here in between 70 and 75, right? Can't remember the, the term. 125 million people can be self-sufficient here. The problem we have with modern science is it is intertwined with modern economics and modern capitalist economics, who are not interested in serving the people, they are interested in serving the shareholders and the minority of people that control the finance. That's not an Islamic society in place. So when you say, does it deliver like what modern instruments deliver and so on, what are the premises and the goals of the modern society? And what are the, mod what are the goals of our society? If it's a question, can I make a living and continue to live sustainably in this world and be comfortable? Yes, I can. Can I? Can, am I comfortable and sustained living in under the modern system? No, I'm not. I don't know about you. Everybody's drowning. It's not like we have this society set up and everything's going fine. Everybody's in debt. Everybody's drowning. Everybody has multiple medical issues and problems arising from a form of medical uh, uh, confusions that take place where you go to the doctor and it treats one aspect of your body and it ends up destroying another aspect of your body. And then you take another drug to sort that out. And then you take another drug to sort the third thing out and so on and so forth until you die a miserable death in a hospital bed. Where is the advance? Let us be realistic. And where is the advance? And let us be more realistic in how we read history, read especially social history, because this is really important. You know, we don't need we don't read enough social history and we don't pay enough attention to the transmission of social values that have taken place in our societies through jobs, 
through professions, through the way that we inhabit space. This is not studied anymore. So when we're making judgments about is this badil, this alternative, going to deliver, we have to be very truthful to ourselves and say, what is it that we want? And this thing that we want, is it in tune and in line with something that is real? And this thing that is real, that we are purportedly want to be in tune with, can that be delivered by modern society? Or can it be delivered by modern traditional, uh, by a traditional society and its structures and its formations and its knowledge structures and formations? And we will find that the answer is with the former. And who are the authorities for that? We have them still. They haven't disappeared, alhamdulillah. They exist. And these are the people that we should be going back to. So, uh, so that we need to have more introspection about uh, these systems when we are comparing one to the other. Things are not stable and, and fine and everything's working well. And so, you know, I have to provide an alternative that does the same job. No, the alternative has to do a better job that serves the human being and not the machine. And that's where we're at at the moment. Wallahu alam. But um, forgive me for my simplicities and my simplifications, but um, I tend to see things a little bit more simplistic sometimes. So, And you are all, mashallah, scholars and thinkers and so on, and I'm not. So I, I tend to see things a little bit too basic. Ashakam to you're the scholar, scholar, mashallah. And thank you so much for a very, very powerful and illuminating lecture. Um, can I just leave on one note? Because I think that you know, may come across. I, I happen to know the Sheikh's thought relatively well. And um, it, may, it may seem that there's some sort of contradiction here between Malana telling us that everything is intact and we need to return to the the those who have inherited the, the the chains of transmission and the, the realized masters on the other hand he says here uh, on page five the seemingly intact nature of the authority of the religious sciences has not altered the picture either implying that the problem does not arise simply in the authoritative structure of the religious sciences do you maulana cream i mean, would you say that uh what needs to be done is that the the serenity and and actualization of human potential and realization and 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 kamal of the of the awliya and those who are realized in the domain of ihsan needs to be again oriented towards the uh, outward alum so that the outward alum become kind of uh, suffused with that baraka and therefore become transformed such that they reflect that realized reality and that's how i understand what you're saying well all all knowledge has a, a, a dual capacity it has you can have knowledge which can be a litany of facts and principles and so on and then you can have knowledge which is infused with a spiritual understanding that makes it operative so to be a, the, the distinction between somebody who knows something and somebody who's realized something is one knows, has cognition of something, but they, they, they do not, it isn't operative in them. It doesn't do anything to their soul. And all knowledge should move our soul in one way or the other. 
That's the function of knowledge. Otherwise, it just becomes dead weight. It becomes a, a, it becomes a tyranny over the memory. That's all it becomes. And that's the difference between operative knowledge and non-operative knowledge. It's not about sentimentalizing uh, some kind of spiritual uh, um, abstractions and so on and so forth. It, it's to do with, again, notions of application. The intact authority, what I meant by that sentence is that when we see everything's gone wrong, do not go and say, oh, it's because the mashayikh don't know anymore. They don't understand the reality of the world anymore. It's because this and that and the other. And basically, we need to do it ourselves. The point here being is that it's to do with this dislocation between the application of this vast treasury of knowledge and the world that we find ourselves in, contextualized by forces that are adamantly against those people specifically and that vision specifically. And we allow it to enter into our immediate and intimate life. That is where we control things still. That is where we control things still. And the reality of understanding this is that when there is an opportunity to diminish this influence, to lessen this hold upon you and your life, take it, do it. This will free you and free your, your capacity to be able to apply those things in, one, in your life. And that's the message we want to give Muslims. We don't want to, you know, th this is the hope because this thing that we have is alive. Tradition is alive. It doesn't die. And when it dies, it can be brought back to birth again. Like, the, you know, there's a statement that says the crafts can never die. You know why they can't die? Because Sayyidina Idris is the one who revealed, uh, uh, Allah revealed these things to Sayyidina Idris to give to us. Sayyidina Idris is still alive. He's still alive. He's not in this dimension. So he's still able to inspire the eruption of those crafts again. That's why the crafts can never, can never die. But there are things that one must do in order to have this come again, appear again. But this is a common understanding, even in the West, amongst craftsmen, people who work on the cathedrals and so on, they still believe in this. The French craftsmen still believe this. And they will say, the craft does not die, cannot die. You can kill craftsmen, but you cannot kill the craft. It always remains something that can be brought back to life again, by the grace of God. So these are interesting things that one should look into, bismillah ta'ala. Uh, thank you, Sidi. I, I'm waffling again, so I better go. Far be it from you, Malana. Thank you so much for a very, very inspiring and stimulating session, Sheikh Doctor. And uh, we will uh, resume, inshallah, next time. Let's hope that um, Maulana Kareem will agree to do more than once a month, because I think we'd all benefit from that. And, uh, and inshallah, we very much hope that next time we'll be able to actually host him in Cambridge. Uh, but thank you so much everyone and uh, uh, please keep us in your prayers thank you so much thank you